0: welcome to the show. Lovely to have you for episode 56 with William Pullen. I'll intro him in a second. We cover topics such as how to practice empathy and intimacy and how our technological age has created distance, loneliness, and how we've actually got to practice human connection like a muscle. To encourage things like empathy. We talk nature versus nurture. We get a bit um, intense in talking about psychotherapeutic processes. And then I challenge William to really get authentic because I love it when a good professional can really go deep and get real. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm very excited today. We've got a real professional in the house, someone I respect and admire greatly. His name is William Pullen. He's a TEDx speaker. He's a psychotherapist. He's also run uh, written an amazing book called Run for Your Life, which has informed some of his practice, which is around doing empathy runs. And we've had conversations around empathy and how it impacts our practice as, as therapists. Welcome to the show, William.
1: Thank, Thank you, Patrick. Nice to be here.
0: Lovely to have you. So uh, fill in a bit of the blanks from that. You've done so many things. Tell us a bit about what you do, who you help, what are you passionate about at the moment?
1: Um, I think at the moment I'm excited particularly about Empathy Runs. Uh, you know, I work as a regular therapist. I work as a running therapist. We can talk about that later if you're interested. Or uh, your listeners are interested. Um, but empathy runs are a sort of thing that I've taken out of them. And they're just a basic, a very basic construct for two people to walk or run together for 10 minutes one side and 10 minutes on the other side. So one does the listening, one does the, the talking, and then you share. And it's this very simple platform. But what it does is it makes people, uh, the movement uh, and the camaraderie creates a sense of freeing up and revelation um and then of course 10 minutes of of, of silence somebody else listening to you for 10 minutes is unheard of these days so that's another anyway it really really works it really it's a it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fact so i had a tedx talk recently about that in manchester and um and, and that's my latest thing i'm passionate about i would say
0: so are you saying that kind of anyone can do these runs or is it a therapist client thing
1: no, no, no. This is for anybody.
0: So anyone just creating the environment where you've got some body movement and you're creating space to listen to sort of anything that the person wants to talk about?
1: Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't need, need to be grave. It could be you know what I had for dinner last night. It's nice to share even small things. They don't have to be uh, massive, do they? Uh,
0: well, and I find that it just, even if I do therapy in that way, maybe with a teenager or, or somebody who wants a bit of a a change of scene it takes away kind of the pressure of this like let me stare into your face situation and find uh, out massive. your problems
1: yeah no that's a massive point I, there are so many different uh things so many different levels that it works on uh no i think um i think it's just a i think it's just a very simple basic practice that's really sort of captures our basic humanity and that humanity's been kind of lost in the modern age, it's, um, you know, all the algorithms that have sent back that data to um, to create uh, social media that's so perfect at um, overwhelming you that we don't have space to hear ourselves or anybody else anymore. And that's the idea, of course. That's exactly I'm not going to say they because there's no they. Uh, the day the is the we. We are we are we're the users and we're the shareholders. Um, but uh, what this gives you is 10 minutes' opportunity to talk. And what's, I think, miraculous about that, it's not miraculous, but it's important, is that because we don't, because intimacy, sharing intimacy framing conversations, daring to speak, etc. The less you use it, the less good you get at it. The more difficult it it feels emotionally, but also the more difficult it is to construct a useful conversation. So I think often these days you need five minutes, you know, of talking before you even work out what you're trying to say or how you're trying to say it. First of all, this gobbledygook comes out and then finally you get to the point. Now, of course, in, in in the age that we're in, everybody's you know their attention spans are half a second, and, and and that's a long way off five minutes. So nobody's really heard anymore. Nobody's really understood. Nobody's got the time for it, you know. But uh, but in this practice, I tell people it's it's very very simple. For the person that's listening, you're not going to fix. You're not going to care for them. You're not going to reassure them. You're not going to ask them questions. Your job isn't to guide them. Your job is to do absolutely nothing but witness and hear them. That's it.
0: So it takes there away is... some of the pressure. Go. Yeah. Completely takes away the pressure uh, from the person listening and allows us to just experience being present with the other person. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this yeah. is so... Um, poignant for me, uh, just because of experiencing some of that disconnect in the city and working for myself and the, the loneliness aspect and trying to forge like deep connections. So I went on quite an alternative festival over the weekend called the Togetherness Festival. No drugs or alcohol, not that anyone should have drugs but n- none of that was present uh, as as a rule but it was all about intimacy and human connection and we did exercises and workshops where we listened to music and we walked around and we connected with a stranger and simply looked into their eyes for a minute or two minutes or, wow. or yeah I know or we look, and then the, the next phase was looking to their eyes and just p- p- touching palms so you introduce touch as well as um, you know eye contact absolute strangers. And I mean, the emotion and the connection that you would feel to a person after just that short exercise was Mm. just immense. And by sort of the second day, it would be before coffee that people would say, how are you? And you'd get the real, 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 how are you answer and have such deep and meaningful connections that by the time I got back and yesterday, Monday, I was sort of on the tube on the train. No, eye I mean, the contrast was so striking as far as no eye contact, everyone on yeah. their phones. And I was a bit like, what is going on in the world to disconnect us in such a big way when all we need is, oh, those little things that can make it so great. So as you know, the theme of this podcast is all around adversity and resilience. And I'm really curious just a little bit about your story and context of of growing up. And do, do you think your parents and, and maybe the education system, prepared you for for life in the in the real world and what you would face <laughs> start off
1: with a small question never, never.
0: <laughs> um, my never
1: my parents and the education system working together and the church um, Of course. <laughs> uh, and the enlightenment no i think um that we have to do one at a time um no i i you know i think that uh Parents pretty much always fail their children one way or another. Um, Mine did an okay job. They did the best they could do with what they had. Um, I don't think it was necessarily a fantastic job, but um, I'd give them a passing grade, you know. Um, They put us in situations or all, all, all of us children into boarding schools and things like that at a very young age, so eight or nine years old. And they lived abroad and that has all sorts of effects on you long, uh, it has a long tail on you one way or another. And it's become an element of my work and it speaks to my masculinity. It speaks to my security. It speaks to all sorts of things in my life. Uh, but for them, they didn't have much choice. Uh, they lived abroad in a country where the schools uh, were absolutely no good. And you had to decide whether to, at a very early age, set your child on a on a track where uh, they wouldn't necessarily... Well, you know where I'm going with that.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah, parents have that decision, and yet there's an impact on us as children as far as uh, how it impacts us. And I guess I'm always curious about how two people, two kids can have the same experience, perhaps a boarding school or of something else, and one of them is going to figure out how to bounce back and use that experience to uh, allow them to deal with greater challenges, to be resilient, to develop that mm. within them, and someone else might go on the path of, of addiction, of falling apart, of toxic relationships, and that sort of cycle. So I'm really curious about what, why that is, or what it, is it that people can do to build that resilience?
1: You know, I was talking to one of my oldest friends, um, uh, a woman called Jessica Alitondo, who's just written a book called The Danish Way of Parenting. She was over here visiting me. We were talking about this. She's a mother of two. And we were talking about why you can have in these families maybe three, four kids, and one kid ends up writing a memoir talking about what a horror story it was. And the other three are like, I didn't see any of that. And we were discussing how that comes around. And I think part of it is, is that some parents make the mistake of thinking that it's fair and wise to treat all the children the same. And I think each child is an individual, and never more so than when you end up with a sensitive child, a child who's sensitive to stress of one sort or another, too much noise, too much change, too much whatever. And if you just try and sort of push him through, push her through, with the rest, then, uh, yeah, that, that kid can can feel that, find it quite traumatic, I think.
0: So do you think that resilience then is innate, that some kids are just born with more than others? Uh,
1: yes, I do. I, I
0: think,
1: think you, you can develop, develop it, absolutely. But uh, but I definitely think that some kids are born less resilient, uh, some kids are born more stressed, more prone to stress, yeah. I mean, there are lots of studies showing that.
0: And I'm, I'm just curious as a therapist, because I've got my own story of what was it along your journey that informed your decision to be in that sort of helping role to support other people?
1: Um, I, I think, think like a lot of um, therapists, and I dare say probably like yours, um, I think the, the, the roots of it are found in the family. It, in my family, I was the eldest son. So that comes with a level of responsibility and and problem solving and authority and um, care, um, responsibility, all that good stuff. So I think that's that's got the roots of it. And um, then you throw in the complexities of the family dynamic that may or may not push you into that role more strongly. And then you throw in a life story with twists and turns and, and hey, Presto, <laughs> if, you, if the right if the right spell comes together, the the right trauma comes together, you end up in therapy and you end up becoming a therapist. And I think that's probably um, 50% of us therapists or more. What would you say?
0: So you're saying that we've, I love that statement, the right kind of trauma has pushed us into maybe some self-development journey ourselves, whether that's therapy or something else, and that can inform our decision to then sort of pay it forward or support other people in some way?
1: Oh well, you know, at that point we going into a really interesting conversation. But uh, yeah, what's, I like to what's think true that for you.
0: What's true for you? Because the conversation is wide, but what's true for you? What's true for me is
1: all my life I've I've tried to in this I described this sort of um, uh, boarding school uh, young boarding school life. I found it difficult, and I decided that I would spend the time trying to understand the world. I spent a lot of time in the library. I spent a lot of time examining my own choices. Um, I wanted to be an authentic person, and, and that's still in me today. And I guess, for me, part of wanting to become a therapist was that I felt like I had gathered a lot of information about the world, one way or another. And then I had become uh, a a, a therapy client myself, so I'd been through that journey, and I realized that actually, this was a skill set I probably possessed, um, and that it would be nice to use it and to explore it. And it was always my dream to write a book. I've always been interested in psychology and self-help. So it all came together quite neatly.
0: And I love the idea of the book titled Run for Your Life because it can have so many uh, different connotations. Um, yeah. What was it within your experience that specifically prompted the book? Um, yeah.
1: Okay, so cast your mind back to uh, 11 years ago. In my life, I was uh, 12 years ago, something like that. I was dating uh, a woman from another country, another faith, another age a lot of others. And um, I spent a lot of time over in that country. Uh, Israel is a country. And she was a very strong Israeli woman. And um, we had a fantastic time, but we were not able to reconcile our differences. And they were many. And as much as I wanted for us to be able to bridge the gap, we couldn't bridge it in the end. And I think... Some of your listeners may recognize this process whereby you give more and more of yourself away as you try to cross a bridge more and more into somebody else's world. So until you've got nothing left, at the very point that, that the relationship crashes, yes. there's very little of you left. And so I had a real meltdown. And I think that in part it had to, it, it fed into a memory of, a, of, of abandonment as a child and all sorts of a personal story as well. And I found very—I went into a depression. To answer your question, I took up running and psychotherapy. And what I noticed was um, that running... And I took up running with a friend of mine, a guy I used to play poker with. So neither of us were exactly healthy humans. Uh, and the two of us began by walking. Then we started running 50 meters and 100 and so on. But bit by bit, we built it up. And what I noticed was the empowerment that I felt. It gave me a sense to get out. Prior to that, like a lot of depressed people, i would made the mistake, or maybe it's not a mistake, it's a a sensible choice in self-care at the time, perhaps, uh, to to isolate um, at home. And I knew that ultimately I needed to get out, get fresh air, and be with other people and make some changes. And so I found a lot of that in the simple practice of running. I felt like it was a place where I could be someone, do something, feel a sense of, uh, of progress uh, and a felt intervention. And uh, and then when I trained to become a therapist, I put the two together and here I am.
0: How, how um, dark did it have to get to, like force you to go outside because I know personally exactly about 10 11 years ago what that dark isolation place is like and it feels right at the time because you whether it's a right self-care choice maybe it is but there's a fine line between that and the shame that we feel about seeing people seeing us in that way and then it extends and extends until we're just hiding and so I'm wondering what if there was a catalyst point for you or was it just a slow shift where you just thought I've got to go outside because this this is untenable anymore what was it for you
1: well i think at first i was overwhelmed in my sadness for i would say several months and once i got and it was thanks to help from my doctor actually who put me on antidepressants and that helped you know reduce some of the noise in my head and it put me in a place where i was more able to make choices and think straight and then i recognized that only I could change what what needed to be changed, and all I needed to do was find the right door, the right key out. I couldn't take any door; uh, many of them would be overwhelming uh, in that state. But it needed to be something that was private enough, healthy enough, um, safe enough—you know—all these things that you're looking for when you're in that state. And running, all I had to do was get from here to the park and be safe with a friend that I knew, share all my stuff with somebody I knew was sharing his with, with me equally. He was going through a divorce. And it felt safe, and it felt, I, felt, uh, I felt like I was healing.
0: So running was really the gateway into what I'm now hearing is around human connection, is around sharing your story, being there for someone else, um, building you up enough building your resilience enough to lead you to the more productive side of of training within your psychotherapy field?
1: Oh, absolutely. And um, and
0: as you all know,
1: training to be a psychotherapist is one of the hardest things you can do in your life. It's it's a good six-year journey or or seven. Um, You have to be in therapy yourself uh, for the majority of it. And so it's a very long and tough journey, and I think the good news at the end of that is it's not. You don't just build up skills, but you build up. I think the right the permission you give yourself permission to look after other people because you know that you've put in the hours. You know that you managed to make it to the end, and that gives you just enough permission to say, yeah, you know what? Well, I guess I'm as I have as much right as uh, any other therapist or any other person training to be a therapist. Uh, to, uh, to practice.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's recognizing the theoretical journey that we go on, but essentially the personal development journey we go on to understand ourselves, to, to cultivate the empathy, because we see our, I mean, I'd certainly learned about, you know, all the flaws within myself and all the things that I needed to work on and overcome and become resilient about, um, as coupled with the theory that allowed me yeah. just enough, as you say, permission to create space. To, to connect with another human being. I do also feel that sometimes psychotherapy can feel a bit distant. So when people become quite stuck in the, the, the brain of it, the cerebral element, the theory of it, that unfortunately I've seen many therapists miss out, or I've heard feedback from clients that they feel like disconnected from the humanity and the empathy side of things. So I love that you're doing some of the, you're, you're focusing on the empathy. I mean, do you what do you think about just the, the therapeutic uh, industry? Do you think there is some disconnection, maybe mirroring what's going on in the world?
1: Whew. Uh, the therapeutic industry. Do you, by that you mean? Are you, do you think a ther- Do I think therapists are struggling to connect as much as they once did? Uh, yeah, sure. I don't think they're struggling, but I think that uh, they they're impacted too. We're all impacted by this world we live in, this double world that we live in. And they use social media, um, or we use social media, uh, so, so we feel the impacts of that. Yeah, I would say so.
0: Absolutely. Um, so tell me a bit about, you've worked with so many clients now, you, you've had the impact of, of the book, of your TEDx talking, of your own personal journey. What do you think is essential in helping people build their resilience? So maybe as a child, we've got some innate qualities, higher or lower. But what are the things that we can actually do when life gets tricky or before it gets tricky to build up that resilience to be able to face it?
1: Uh, Well, I think uh, discipline is is a fantastic uh, practice. Um, or good habits, making your bed in the morning like that Admiral talked about. Building up little good habits, doing your ironing, making care to, to do the washing up, taking pride in the various little things that you do, I think can make you feel stronger, as, as the, I forget his name now, the Admiral with the famous YouTube talking about. if you do If you start one each day by making your bed, anything else is possible. And I do think that's true. It's a, a, as he said, even if you do nothing else, you'll come back to a bed you made that looks great. <laughs> and, that's and in there, what you've got is you've got uh, a sense of pride in what you're doing. You've got confidence that, that you can look after yourself. You you know that you're, uh, you've got good practice. So you have a lot going on there just in making your bed. That will create a fair amount of resilience. But mostly, I think... What I always tell people is, is try to live. You know, I don't think you can. I don't think there's a lot of resilience-building opportunities sitting at home watching Netflix. I think um, uh, you've got to challenge yourself, throw yourself into different things, re- whether they're relationships, personal, professional. Uh, go and join a dance club. Uh, you know, try and climb Everest. Um, make flies at home. Uh, fly you fishing fly flies. Make beautiful flies. Write a book. Um, star blog who knows but uh, just try lots of different things and the more you try the more you'll discover as i put in my book that you're not that man that woman who only likes eight out of the 100 ice creams out there ice cream flavors you're in fact somebody that likes 20 30 40 of them yeah. and uh, and you're much more than you think that you are
0: oh i love that so much um, what are the? Do you put habits and routines in place for you now? Just to because as much as you know all this stuff and you've experienced loads of things, yeah. you are also taking on lots of the world's problems, of people's issues, and we need to look after our well-being within that. Do you have habits and routines besides making your bed? I bet if we like viewed into your room, your bed would be perfect, but um, <laughs> that you that you incorporate into your own routines. <laughs> I you
1: going to say this it uh, like, Ironing. <laughs> Do you know what? I love a bit of ironing. I put on a podcast or I put on some classical music or yeah. sometimes silence if it's first thing in the morning. Yeah. And I get that ironing out and it gives me, I have got a lot of t-shirts. Generally during the day I like to wear t-shirts. Yeah, And uh, and yeah, it's nice to wear t-shirts. I mean, I'm, that's nice. But what's even nicer is ironing it itself. You know, it's such a, a Zen practice. Um, you like have to make the time for it. It doesn't even make sense, right? Because if you <laughs> if you take them to the, to the dry cleaners, you can have them done for next to nothing. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you if you work out the value of your time. But I do it because I find it. I I like the sense of self care that it gives me. I know that I've taken time to be this person, to do this thing, and that I know that there's another person that just wants me to be you know doing all these more useful things and uh, you know more professionally advancing things or 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 fun things and actually i love the fact that i've worked out that this is actually what's really good for me cooking is another one i like to cook
0: so something around self-care but there's a mindful element to that the running as well like being present fully without the distractions of the the before and the after
1: Mm, that's it
0: what Um, do you do What do I do? Um, Oh, I'm a work in progress, obviously. Um, I like going to exercise classes that are high adrenaline. Um, uh, So so occasionally yoga, but I prefer like kickboxing or something because it allows me to release some of the uh, adrenaline that builds up for me. Um, I find meditation challenging because I'm very... And we can go right back to survival as a kid, fight or flight, and I always do the fight element, and I push forward. And I mean that like I've created it in a more healthy way where it's about achievement and pushing forward in life. But I definitely have to question, you know, my ability to stop and just be in the moment with my kids or do things that are not achievement-focused. Yeah. So this weekend that I was talking about where I just left my phone in my car, the you know, the entire time, was, was like a revelation at how addicted to my phone I actually am. I'd like to think I'm not, but it's work, and I've yeah. got to, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness. It's so, so soul-draining, you know. And then we become yeah. part of the problem of disconnection and avoiding eye contact and all the rest of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's atrocious. I think the more I read about people who take a, what was it I was reading, it's called it a technological Shabbat, I'm not Jewish myself, but I think Shabbat's a Friday night thing. And I think the article, if I like, if I understood, if I remember correctly, is about turning off your phone on Friday night for 24 hours. And um yeah. The more I'm more and more attracted to the idea of that. I I think that you know, who was it, Marshall McLuhan and all of his work, it's the medium, not the not the message. All of that stuff about how technology was going to get, get, do us in and that was what he wrote that 40 years ago or something and, that, and he was writing about television people were like oh my god we shouldn't be watching you know uh, these violent shows and mcclern who was a, uh, an expert on media said listen you've got it all wrong it, that's only part of it, what's on what's on the TV. The real problem is going to be the TV itself and the fact you're going to be addicted to it and all these other media type more And they're all going to make you... His theory was that they they uh, they fragment you because each kind of media uh, extends essentially extends your nervous system so that it no longer feels like it's just yours. Your ears... Uh, are the ears that listen out for all these other things. Your fingers are the fingers of the Internet. And so you become distended and spread out, and your sense of your own private space uh, becomes smaller, and the sense that you are part of this bigger thing that uh, becomes larger.
0: But then feeling disconnected. I mean, we we definitely use all of those things as avoidance strategies. I mean, I've done it myself, and I definitely have clients coming to me where, you know, I've had a bad day, I'll just watch Netflix for six hours or I'll just chat or, or go on social You know, in order uh, to avoid maybe feeling and then you don't process some of the stuff and it builds up over time and then people have crash points where you know, 70% more children and young people are experiencing mental health issues, um, yeah. which has to come from the lack of presence that they must feel in their lives.
1: Yeah, and, and the wrong, as you were saying, it's the wrong kind of connection. We become connected to everything out there. Yes. But then I remember about three years ago I was at a party and I found myself dancing, which I hadn't done for some time. I'm not quite as old as that makes me sound. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty old. Anyway, uh, for whatever reason, I hadn't danced for some time. And it left me happy for days and days afterwards because and much more because I felt connected to my body, to these people at the party, to the fun, to joy, to community, and and the reality is it doesn't matter who I speak to uh, on, on the net and what interesting friendships I make. If they're not here now, if we're not mi- making breaking bread together in person, then as soon as I hang up, the, the disconnect between where I was and where I am become so self-evident again. So, of course, what we choose to do is just immediately facing that disconnect, um, just try to quickly reconnect with what's available, which is, of course, go back on the web until finally we're over-invested there.
0: What the hell do we do? What do we do about this?
1: Just turn off some of the notifications on your phone, and put your phone down. Go for walks without it. You know, uh, just switch the phone off. Switch the switch the bloody thing off.
0: So take like consciously decide to have yeah. to have breaks. And I also think we need to make choices to be the change, not wait for um, you know society to change, but to make the eye contact or to have the conversation or to connect with real people or make mm. that sort of effort. Um, I also, in order to keep my uh, resilience sort of sustained, do some of that morning routine stuff that people talk about. So you're talking about doing the the bed, um, just trying to consciously fill my brain up with things that are more uplifting and useful don't listen to the news um, because there's so much noise. If we're talking about technology, there's so much noise at us from all angles all the time that I find that because I deal with a lot of problems and issues in the world, I've got to choose like how much noise comes into my brain. Yeah. And so I conscious, and it's been amazing to not watch the news or to switch off. And I don't read that bloody Metro paper in the, in London on the tube uh, just cause it's always just horrific. Like, pedophiles and rape and war and it's like that's the only thing in it and it you know affects my 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 mood and my resilience in a big way but i encourage people to like experiment find the thing that's right for you you tried the running thing try you know there's some universal truths around going outside and making your bed and doing you know looking at respecting yourself in a way um but there's other stuff that it's like does does meditation work for you does yoga work for you like what works for you and trying it out
1: yeah, I, I read an interesting study last week on the contrast between reading nonfiction and fiction, and and I suspect you're like me and you read far too much nonfiction. Yes. <laughs> um, and I find that nonfiction makes just feeds into that part of me that that wants to know. Uh, needs to know and thinks that knowing will make me stronger, thinks that knowing will get me somewhere, when actually, what I need in this disconnected world is I need to feel and I need to be felt, uh, so to speak. And so, the book, the, the article says that you should read more fiction than non fiction because fiction helps you to empathize not just with others but with yourself too. Um, the complexity. Uh, the emotional complexity of non-fiction uh, fiction, uh, is much better for the heart and soul uh, than, uh, than non-fiction.
0: So are you saying that empathy also can be nurtured and taught in the same way as resilience can? Uh,
1: yes, absolutely.
0: It's a tricky one. Um, but I love what you say about feeling and being felt. That's often the, the missing piece of the puzzle. We can know things and learn and be absorbed with knowledge from all and every single angle. Um, But what about the human connection bit where we actually feel something? Ooh, I love that.
1: Well, the problem is neglect, right? When something's missing, you don't know. You forget that you even had it, or maybe you never had it. Uh, But but what you're left with is a feeling that something's not quite right. And you've no idea what it is because the thing that's not quite right is missing. If somebody's beating me up every morning, then I know that that's what the problem is. Um, But if, if I get up, and my life feels cold and meaningless, and yet I apparently live a life much like my neighbors, then how can I work out what's missing and actually what's missing? I love the work of Martin Buber, who talks uh, in his famous treatise of I-thou about the, the contrast between the the I-thou relationship, the i It relationship. And the i It relationship Um, I uh, objectify the other. The man that sells me the newspaper is just a a person selling me a newspaper. I'm not interested in seeing him properly, talking to him properly. Uh, I'm not interested in him knowing anything about me. So I'm not interested in any connection. Buber said that when I make the effort to have an I-thou relationship, including with the newspaper guy, when I look at him in a way that he knows that I see him, and so he feels, he feels looked at by me, and then I see him recognizing that he's looked. he can see that I'm looking at him. When my words show that I'm interested in him, when my smile shows that I'm interested in him, um, when, when my body movement seems to suggest that in this moment I am here present buying this newspaper, I'm not, I didn't try to sort of buy it while on the run. You know, for this three seconds, I'm actually standing here right in front of you, and, and your presence is important to me, um, even if it's only for three seconds. He said that he said that in the ideal relationship, when two people come together like that, the world makes sense. Uh, he said that the critical thing, and and I love this idea, the critical thing is that you have to share the stage 50 50. Don't go in there and try to be Mr. Charming. Don't you know? And dominate the stage because the newspaper guy doesn't want that every morning. Um, he just wants you to be normal and show up to see him. And the two of you, it's the same in a relationship, right? You have to share the stage, which means my ideas about the world are no more important than your ideas are. Uh, and I love that idea. And I think when we do that, when we take an interest in others and and we dare to, us to reveal ourselves, then what else is there?
0: Absolutely. Oh, and yeah, the the whole thing about you don't notice what's absent, you just feel the void of something. And people oh, yeah. come to us with symptoms of anxiety or depression yeah. or, or all sorts of things, and I think that's really what it can often be, is a lack of fulfillment and a lack of human connection. So, yeah? So much. I was just going to say, say so much. much. I think so much anxiety,
1: modern-day anxiety, Uh, Is built exactly around that, is people are neglecting each other and they're neglecting themselves, and the consequence of that is a quite correct sense of anxiety. The anxiety is there to let you know, um, guess what, you're messing up, Um, you need to change something.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, the, like the, in summary, what I'm getting from this is listen to, you know, what your body is telling you as far as when you're experiencing some of that anxiety or depression or loneliness or the absence of something, you know, make the effort, listen to it and figure it out with a therapist or a friend with empathy. Um, what are the ways that you can improve on uh, that experience? Um, yeah. what's next for William Pullen? Where are you, you pushing forward to, uh, in, in the future?
1: Well, I'm just about to submit a proposal for my next book, uh, which uh, the working title at the moment is The Final 5% Making Peace with the Tough Stuff. Uh, it's about how um, we tend to work on all the easiest parts of ourselves first, and then there's a sort of no-go area just here yeah. where we keep uh things like shame and regret and and, uh, and wow. guilt and things like that yeah. and so it's how to uh, have a better relationship with with that little piece there and repatriate it
0: amazing i can't wait when's it when when are you hoping for it to come out
1: what depends whether uh, it's going can to go to the frankfurt book fair in october and we'll see whether anybody bids for it
0: amazing exciting um, and if people want to work for you or find your book or get in touch anymore uh, where can they find you
1: they can find me on Twitter at Pullen Therapy. They can find me on Facebook, DynamicRunningTherapy.com. They can find me my personal um, uh, sorry my personal website, DynamicRunningTherapy.com. They can um, find my TEDx on YouTube. Of course, just put William Pullen, Movement is Medicine. Um. That's it.
0: That's a whole lot. Perfect. Well, we'll add all of those links into the show notes so that our listeners can access uh, those as easily as possible. Um, until then, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, uh, and your authenticity. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, Thank you, Petra. I enjoyed it